Welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast, a podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and I've gone down the PhD route again today. I've got uh, a special guest on the line for today's podcast, so I'll let him introduce himself. So who have I got on the podcast today? Uh, good Evening, good morning, good evening, good morning at the moment, 11 o'clock, uh, Associate Professor Sam Elliott, Flinders University in Australia. Now, I've had you on socials for a while, Sam, and I'm really, I've seen some of your research out there, but um, for those that don't know you, can you give us a bit of a background on who you are and what your, your kind of, your research focuses are? Yeah, absolutely. So fundamentally, I'm a researcher in sport and specifically in youth sport, parenting and psychosocial outcomes. Uh, and what I basically do is I research with parents, with coaches, with young people in community sport uh, to learn more about the issues and the challenges that impact on development, on enjoyment, on motivation, uh, on psychosocial outcomes. And all of these ultimately um, help us understand more about participation, retention and even dropout. So there's a lot of different areas there, but fundamentally it's looking at the um, I, I guess uh, the the broad journey that is youth sport. It's um it's a it's a pretty important space. Obviously, and I've had this conversation with a few people on the podcast about youth sport and about kids in sport and getting people to understand that we're building the future of the sport by being involved in in, in those in those junior sports spaces. Where I think sometimes you get caught up with the fact that you. You're coaching kids and you're trying to build the next superstar, but you're not really going to build the next superstar as a general rule. You're going to be building the the kids that are going to be in that sports space for the next 20 or 30 years as the, the ongoing coaches, the ongoing helpers out of the club, all that kind of thing. It's, um, it's an important space to be involved with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one that I think uh, a lot of people uh, are well-intentioned in their efforts to, to contribute to sport. Uh, especially at the grassroots level. Um, but even so, what our research has found for the last certainly 10 years and, and well beyond that is that there's always risky elements to youth sport involvement, con conflictual relationships is one example, um, differing um, agendas and priorities. Uh, and ultimately, what can be lost in that is what is best for not just the child, but for all children involved in youth and community sport. So it, it can be a challenge. Um, but there's some great resources and some great research, which really, I guess, lifts and shifts the conversation about how we enhance children's experiences and development in sport. Interesting point you brought up there is, as a general rule, most parents are putting their hand up from a good space. They're putting their hand up to help because their their kids are involved. But what I've found is they're generally regurgitating the stuff that they had as a kid when they, when they start coming. Just quickly on your sport background, can you talk me through what your junior sport was like as a kid and how that impacted your your shift into your, the path you've taken now? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was younger, I grew up in a small regional town. Is it small? About 25,000, 30,000 people, Mount Gambia, um, which is in the lower southeast of the limestone coast. And I played uh, a number of different sports growing up, basketball, um, T-ball, a um, bit of cricket in the backyard with my friends, but I was in love with Australian football, so Aussie rules. And um, that was the sport that I really followed through right through my junior and then my youth years, um, right through to moving to Adelaide post-school to, to study here at university. 
Um, and in that time, one of the fondest memories that I had was, of course, the success and the, uh, the feeling of development and progression um, as a young child. Um, but my sport experience was not without its own challenges along the way. And so one of the stories that I do look back with a bit of a smile, um, but at the time was, was something that was quite interesting, um, was a story around, uh, I think I was 13 years of age in a grand final and South Gambia were playing North Gambia, um, sorry, East Gambia in a final. And I got tackled in this in this grand final and I thought it was quite high around the neck and I thought I was going to get a free kick. And the umpire blew the whistle and it was a ball up. And in that moment, I can recall a lot of parents on the sideline getting very angry. And it got to the point that there was a parent trying to jump the fence, clearly in anger with the decision. And as it turned out, that parent, as I perceived, was was my father. So um, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting story and an interesting experience. And that isn't really what's driven my interest in parents in sport and, and youth sport generally. Uh, but it is a story nonetheless of my my days in sport as a child and uh, one that I always speak about when I have these opportunities to speak with uh, people like yourself. Yeah, for sure. That must have been a, a different experience having the, the threat of your, your father jumping the fence. It's um, it's hopefully improved over the years, but I think that you, you do still, we have had um, certain um, things have happened at our my son's sporting clubs where we've had to speak to parents about the how they how they act around the the team so it's certainly 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 causing issues but is there any particular trait of some of those junior coaches that stood out for you as a player as a kid that that appealed to you yeah I, I think there's um upon reflection there's a number of lessons that can be learned from all of my coaches so one of my first coaches, in school football as an under nine uh, at St. Paul's Primary School. Um, I just remembered some of the the basic advice about how to play football. It was um, as much instructional and encouraging um, at, at those, I, I guess, really formative years. And as I moved into say under 14 football at South Gambia, where it was much more organized and much more structured, um, but there are a lot more players and there are a lot more, it was a much bigger community environment. So some of the the coaching characteristics um, were broader. There was there were m- multiple hats, as you would know, that, that coaches wear uh, to support young children in sport. And so it's not only uh, the level of expertise or knowledge that a coach may bring to the role, um, but of course, it's more of these other things as well around the, the social support needs of young people and um, integrating a lot of different abilities, especially at a young age, together. Um, and so there's some, I, I hate the term soft skills because I actually think it's one of the most difficult skill sets to actually um, utilise. And it's those inter, um, interpersonal uh, and indeed those intuitive skills uh, of emotional intelligence and, and awareness and the ability to read a room. And, and a lot of coaches do not have that. Uh, and so they end up learning through experience and what that actually means is that they end up learning through making mistakes and then improving along the way. And so um, some of the best coaches that I've had have been very self-aware, um, very good at reading the room uh, and really tailoring experiences, especially in team sports, but tailoring experiences to the collection of individuals that comprise the team. Uh, and as you know, Brent, that, that that's a difficult challenge sometimes if you've got 30 young players who are in your locus of control, you're responsible for their well-being. you have an ambition to develop them as young people as well as young players, 
but invariably they come to sport with different motivations and different commitment levels and different interests. And so that is the skill set that I think that the best coaches that I've had have brought to the table. Uh, and by comparison, the coaches that perhaps have not had the greatest impact on my journey have lacked those levels of self-awareness, critical thinking, the ability to exhibit some level of emotional intelligence uh, or ability to read the room. I'm going to touch on the the, um, the really the, the standout point here and it's something that I've bring up with with team sport coaches that I have on the podcast because I'm coming from a background of golf and traditionally our coaching is one-on-one. Um, how do you deal with, the, as you said, with the, the 30 kids in front of you that are all coming from different skill levels, different backgrounds? Um, you've probably got half a dozen kids that have been told to be there by their parents. You've probably got half a dozen kids that are super talented. Um, how do you deal with that group type setup? Yeah, this is one of the great challenges of being a coach in the you know in twenty twenty three, and and it's something that um, it, it would be very easy to conclude that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So let's sort of play this out. If you take the middle ground or the middle road approach, which is I don't know if I should cater for those that really need some assistance, or should I be accommodating for our top end and hoping that the rest rise to that level. Or do we aim for the middle? And I think if you take that type of approach, um, there are always consequences with that decision. So if you aim for the middle, you're going to have a lot of people who, or a lot of players who are maybe bored or disengaged because you're not meeting their challenge point. There might be some kids at the other end that are still nowhere near that middle ground. And so you're really missing the mark to develop them and to build relationships with those players. If you aim too high, then invariably you might be building some anxiety, some difficulty that's beyond the playing group fundamentally, except for those players who are going to dominate possession or dominate uh, gameplay because they are physically mature or cognitively mature to play the game at a certain level. And then if you go to the third option, which is to, hey, we're going to, you know, we're only as strong as our weakest link. You often hear that in sport. And so you may be looking to develop players who... um, who demonstrate a lower level of competence, uh, a lower level of ability to play the game. And so if you're going to work with them, which is a fantastic, um, it's a fantastic and a well-intentioned ambition, you might find that the players who are much more advanced, quite bored, and again, you increase the risk of disengagement. Uh, so what do you do? If you aim for the the, the, the high or the, the middle or, or the um, at the, I guess, the beginning of your, your team development, Uh, What is the solution? And this is where coaches I find in practice, uh, certainly at the community level, often struggle because they don't really know what is the best decision. Um, And regardless of the decision that they end up making, there are consequences outside of the team, parent expectations, club expectations, what's happening in the older and the younger grades around you. So there's a lot of things that come into play there and coaches could be forgiven for just doing their best and aiming for the middle. Um, But what the research actually tells us is that these coach-athlete relationships and the way in which you optimise development is to tailor your approach. And so we really need to think about how we design our trainings that accommodate for tailored learning. And so I'll I'll offer an example here, Brent. Um, If I was to have a, um, let's try a different sport. If I was to, uh, my my young daughter, throw a beanbag into a hoop, some children will find that really easy. Some will find that really difficult. And some will find that a really engaging activity. It's, it's right 
on their challenge point. Um, and so what could I do? Well, I could set up a hoop that's really close, a hoop that's further away and a hoop that's even further away again. And so we differentiate the level of difficulty or complexity of the task. And we need to use that example when we design training in football or in golf to really cater for different needs of our players. And if we do that, then we stand uh, grounds and, and, and give ourselves an opportunity um, to, uh, to not only to, to, to advance or to develop the individuals, but to actually advance and develop the team. So I'm hearing there if we can set up like a games-based coaching environment where we can tailor the games and have that those because obviously if we can push the kids to their at their point where they're being challenged, they'll, they'll start to improve. So having the game set up where you can make it easier or harder based on the child in front of you is important. Yeah, ga- games-based coaching or um, you know the use of, of game sense activities, that's in vogue right now. And I think it's a, a, a good... It's a good shift for practice, but there are two challenges, Brent, that I find. A lot of people talk about game sense or game-based practices and aren't actually doing it. It's not simply rolling out a ball and playing. That's not what game sense is, and it's not game-based practices um, in a empirical or certainly in a research-based sense. So there still needs to be clear learning intentions. There still needs to be opportunities to check in and pause play and see where the game might be breaking down. And then to find those teachable moments inside the game for individuals and the team as well. What I tend to see is a lot of coaches setting up a game of 4v4 or 3v3 or 6v6, whatever it might be in any, in this case, team-based sport, and claim that they are using a game-based approach. Um, And it's devoid of learning intentions or learning objective. It's devoid of if you like, different ways of shaping the play to increase or decrease the complexity. Um, So while I absolutely advocate for the use of game-based learning, um, I think sometimes we need to think more about what that actually looks like in practice. The second thing is that game-based practice is not the be-all and end-all. And so I often see a lot of training designs now which are really emphasising all gameplay. And there is still a need for closed practice or closed skill drills. It's just a balancing of the two. Uh, and so I think the lesson there is whichever approach you take, it's still using that that slanty rope or in this case, the the short, the medium and the longer hoops to throw your beanbags into. It's making sure that there are tailored um, levels of difficulty for our players to learn and develop in. It would be like you going back to reception and learning at school. And that's the level of education you will always have for the rest of your life. There's a point where you need to be challenged. And so as you graduate to year one, year two, year three to high school, and then post high school, um, that there are certain levels of challenge that you can meet because of the demands that are placed on you. So we need to really um, scaffold and tailor some of that learning accordingly, even if it is or is not game-based coaching. That, that makes sense. If you, you, You've got to be able to perform the skill without any pressure to start with. You've got to be able to kick the football, hit the golf ball, do that kind of stuff in a in a closed skill type setup um but then you've got to be able to apply that skill in in the actual game so it's fine to be able to kick the football and hit a target when you've got no pressure on you but then being able to do that inside of a game is the the step up to that skills and to be able to perform it under there so for the coaches out there how do you identify when the player should be switching from performing that skill simply and then being able to perform that skill in a game situation yeah, so I mean, the, the the answer to this in in any sport will be it depends. But 
But if I was to take Australian football as an example, and I'm a development coach at the South Adelaide Footy Club, so we get a lot of players who are uh, talented young players. So a lot of the groundwork at the grassroots has already happened. Uh, and so we get players that can kick, they can mark, they can run. They are generally, um, you know, predisposed athletically to play at a high level. So we get a, uh, a talented group to work with. And, and that's that, that makes our jobs easier in some ways because we can then focus on development rather than fundamentals. Um, but if you are at the grassroots, if you're at the community level, under 10s, under 12s, kids that are new to the sport, where do you start? And I don't think the answer is exclusively close skill. And once they can kick a ball to mum or dad, or once they can kick a ball to their partner in a line, uh, and it looks like the ball is moving in the right way and that they drop the ball well, and it looks like they know what to do once they kick the ball. I don't think that's the answer that graduates them into a game. Because even if they do that, the decision-making in the game might paralyze performance. And so there's certainly some challenge there to learn skills, absolutely, through gameplay. It could be in the backyard with your brother or sister. It could be with mum or dad, uh, with your neighbours. But it's just to learn the skill uh, through doing. And so we don't want to make this a clinical or a sanitised experience um, because there is still a need for them to learn that in situ in the context of a game. Where I would then tone back the emphasis on the game is that some players just need more time and more space to make that decision. So Brent, who may be an expert footballer, may be able to jump straight into a game uh, of nine-a-side football and know what to do. Sam might need to play five-a-side on the same sized oval. So I've got more time and more space and less players around for me to speed up my understanding about how to get the ball and then what to do with the ball once I get it. So it's going to be different depending on the individual, of course, and of course the uh, the age group that you're working with. Um, but I think the, the, the key idea here was to offer coaches some advice would be to think about public speaking. How do you get someone to get over their fear of public speaking? It's not to put them in front of a stage, on a stage in, in front of a thousand people. Um, that's not going to help. And it's not to just make them practice in front of a thousand people and then in a week's time, they're going to be good enough. It's about graduated exposure to challenge. And so what would you do? Well, the first thing I would suggest is you read your speech in front of yourself uh, or in, in front of a mirror. That Do that. And once the words come out, you're then going to graduate to a room with one person in that room. And that would be the challenge to start the process of developing a level of competency for the task at hand. And once Brent has mastered speaking in front of one person, we might add two people. And so now there's a you know there's more than one person in the room and eventually we can go from two to maybe five and five to eight and eight to 10. And we're still gonna have feelings of anxiety and apprehension and nervousness, but the individual has learnt their own coping mechanism, their own strategy to deliver or to execute a certain type of performance. So in sport, it would be thinking along those lines about how do we simplify and then graduate or increase the complexity when the performer is ready. It's a, it's a challenging space for coaches, isn't it? Just to be able to, even if you, like, again, they're, they're in the community space, they're, they're part-time coaches. They're, they aren't professional coaches. They're out there doing it out of the goodness of their heart. To be able to identify those those skills and to see when the child's actually progressing. So how would you advise coaches in that community space to be able to assess when a kid's actually got something and be able to progress it to the next level? 
Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the and again, I apologize for all my football examples here, Brent. I'll try and no, it's perfect. <laughs> but um, you know, if your listeners uh, maybe are coaching at a at a grassroots level of community footy, um, the ball is on the ground ninety five percent of the game, which means that most of the game the ball is not getting kicked, it's not being marked, it's not being handballed. It's on the ground a lot of the game. So the number one skill that you should be hoping to develop. Uh, is can they pick the ball up off the ground because that's where it is. And so one of the the markers of whether players can do that is firstly can they can they see where the ball is and can they go to the ball? And once they go to the ball, can they actually step over the ball so they can protect themselves and get low enough to pick the ball up? So if their hands get dirty, that's a good sign because they're getting low enough. If they can pick the ball up with one take, that's a good sign because now once they've got it, they can learn the next piece which is what do we do with it? So what I would suggest is having a small, a medium, and even a large square. And in that, you might have um, two players versus one defender. Really simple. Okay, so two players, Brent and Sam are going to try and get the ball. One of us will pick it up, um, and the other one is going to try and help you pick it up. Uh, And so um, there may be a defender trying to uh, pick the ball up himself or try and stop you. And so in that moment, by having a really small plane space, that might be too difficult. It's like, no, I'm, I'm too scared. It's, it feels too close. Uh, I'm worried about the body contact. There's too many players around me. So let's move them to the middle square. A bit more space. Let's roll the ball in so that it advantages someone. They've got an opportunity to take the ball. Um, and if that's too difficult for Brent and Sam, well, let's put them to the larger space again. Okay. And if that's too difficult, well, maybe we take the defender out. Okay, maybe just roll some balls out initially. So there are different levels of exposure there, but that doesn't mean that Sam and Brent demand the attention of the coach for the entire time. It would be about making sure that all of the players have an opportunity to cycle through these different degrees of challenge. And you will learn very quickly those that have dirty hands. That's a good sign that oh, they're probably ready to, what do we do once we pick the ball up? Can we take off or can we handball the ball? Um, so uh, some signs there for coaches. I think it's really breaking it down to the most simplistic part of your game and then looking for markers or signals that the players can do that. I think at junior footy, if they can kick, mark, handball, tackle, um, they're, they're the fundamental principles that are laid to play football. But you can't kick the ball. You can't handball the ball. You certainly can't uh, do anything on the back of a tackle if you don't know how to pick the ball up off the ground. So it's really knowing your sport and thinking what is the most fundamental part of that uh, and, and can we create a condition or a learning environment to help players learn and understand and feel confident and competent in those environments? So that would be an example for, for your listeners to try and think about um, differentiating the learning within the same, within the same uh, training session. It's a, it's a good point you bring up because I wouldn't have even thought of that. When you think about coaching football, you think about coaching kick Mark Campbell. You don't think about junior sport because it does. It's been it's on the ground. And even even um, in like my boys just started playing under 13s and they've just changed to a weather football. So they've been using synthetic footballs up until this age group. We haven't had a wet day yet, but I'm sure the first day of rains, that ball's going to be on the ground for most of the game because they, they aren't going to be able to hold it. So being able to get the ball back off the ground is a, is a skill and is probably a great place to start. That didn't cross my mind at all. Yeah, and it's it's the same in um, – I'll give you another example. So at, at the South Adelaide Football Club and certainly at the AFL, you might be surprised, but certainly AFL data would indicate the ball turnover. So 
The Crows play uh, Collingwood this week, you know, in the AFL. Uh, in that game and in all games, the average rate of turnover is every five possessions, which means that the Crows, on average, will touch the ball five times before it gets given back in some way. It's turned over to the opposition. Uh, and then when Collingwood get it, on average, five touches before it turns over again. That's just the nature of the game. Now, they are the best players at Australian football. So you can imagine the turnover rate at A-grade level in the community, let alone juniors in the community. I mean, the ball may likely turn over, um, you know, maybe every one, two, three, four possessions. It's a very high rate of turnover. So often we think, well, it's out that way, rather than just teaching the fundamentals and game plan and structure, it's a little bit more elaborate at that level. We've still got to look at the principles of play, the, the most basic elements of play. It's like, oh, you know what? We've got to... We gotta learn how to react when we when we win the ball back, and we have to learn how to react when we lose the ball because it happens so often in the game. Um, but often you see in these programs, um, and South do it really well. But in other programs, a real emphasis on rotation and strategy and tactics and structure and bits and pieces, and it's all important. It all adds to how teams perform. But we shouldn't lose sight of like really the key elements of the game and uh, at, at junior football. Balls on the ground a lot. The ball turns over a lot. That that'd be the first pieces that I'd be looking at to try and uh, put some time of our training towards. Um, notwithstanding the need that players want to kick a ball and they want to mark a ball and they want to be in games, so you need elements of that. One because it's it's a critical part of playing the game, but two, you I guess psychosocially you want to appease the the motivational orientations of the players which means we want to make sure that they are enjoying their sport so they come back the following training session. Um, so there are some implicit um, and often taken for granted reasons why we use things in sport as well. You brought up a soft spot there talking about the Crows and I'm a Carlton supporter. So Carlton, the, the Crows didn't turn it over too many times against us a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very sad. You brought up a good point there about enjoyment and I'm really keen to, to get into that. So what makes an enjoyable sporting experience for a kid? If a kid's out there getting involved in sport, what makes an enjoyable experience and does that change based on their age? Yeah, really, really good question. Um, I have to refer to two things here. Number one, Amanda Vysek, who is an academic um, at George Washington State University in the US. And in 2015, she published a, a, a groundbreaking paper, it's not to be underestimated, which basically looked at these, these models called fun maps. And these fun maps were the outcome of um, research with children about what constitutes fun and enjoyment. And while you and me could brainstorm a handful of sources of enjoyment, touching the ball, kicking goals, playing with friends, they tend to be the common ideas that we hear when it comes to children's sport. Amanda's work had revealed 81 determinants of fun. Wow. And so on the back of that research, and I continue to advocate for this, um, not just through Amanda's work, but on my own podcast, Beyond the Club, we are deconstructing the 81 determinants of fun. We barely scratch the surface of making sport fun and enjoyable. Um, and I think if clubs and your listeners are continually going back to lots of gameplay, play with friends, feel like they're improving, that's fun. Uh, of course, it, it is, but it's the three out of 81 pieces of the puzzle. So we have a lot of work to do to educate, to upskill, to inform uh, community sporting clubs about what fun actually involves and what could it involve. And I think a lot of things clubs might actually be doing 
um, without even knowing. But having some awareness of that might uh, ramp up some of those efforts or it might reinforce some of the decisions about the following season, about what we do and when we do things. Um, and and to, be, to be, I guess, informed in that space really gives you know, clubs an opportunity to enhance how fun and how enjoyable this sport offering is. The reason this matters is because what we know in the literature, and, and you can appreciate this in practice, I'm sure, Brent, is that the number one fuel for continuation in sport is fun. In other words, if we want children to stay engaged, if we want them to come back the following season, they need to be having so much fun that they cannot wait to come back. If it's somewhat fun, but then they go and do some other activity outside of sport, which is more fun, then we find ourselves in a conundrum where children may or may not make that decision to return the following season. So it's incumbent on coaches, it's incumbent on clubs, junior coordinators, parents, volunteers, to really have an informed understanding about what fun constitutes and then really taking every opportunity to learn about um, the ways in which their club and their environment can facilitate that. Is it? Is it a, does it change based on the skill level of the child? So if you say you've got someone who – and does it change as they get older and their skill improves? So if you've got someone who's 12 years old who's got um, a huge amount of talent, which is um, in, in speech mask because it's a hard word to define, but if you've got a kid that's actually a pretty decent player at 12, does, is his enjoyment um, different to the kid who's only just starting out? Yeah, it, it, it does, and not just at, at this age group. I mean, I published some research a couple of years ago which looked at um, the experience of being talent identified. So these kids, that they're good at sport and they make their way into a talent pathway. Um, what are they looking for? What is the experience of being talented? Um, and while fun is important for these talented young players, they're about 15, 16, 17 years of age, but while fun is important, what actually makes fun, what constitutes fun, shifts and it's very much about improvement if you improve at this age group in a talent program then sport feels fun if you're not improving uh at the rate that you would like any conversations on the car ride home from mum and dad about as long as you had fun son you know as long as you had fun you know my daughter's name is remy as long as you had fun remy those kind of conversations don't actually support talented athletes uh and it certainly doesn't reinforce an idea of fun in their mind because what fun means to them now is improvement if you scale this back to say 12 years old where a lot of children are still developing fundamental movement skill and of course there are some that may be more advanced or competent than others um, the answer is yes there are different ways in which children extract fun from their sport so some children who are very talented will find fun through um, mental bonuses through challenge through um, scoring goals. There'll be other children who find fun in the coach joining in the training session. There'll be others that enjoy the social elements of sport, such as having a meal together before the weekend game. There are literally 81 ways in which children source fun. Um, and we really need to think carefully about um, the ways in which we try and facilitate an experience that caters for all children, rather than just those that um, are attracted to um, the, the the commonly, I guess, termed touch the ball, play with friends, kick goals, um, I guess, construction of fun. 
challenging space it is and um we'll certainly get to your podcast i would certainly encourage everyone to go and go and search it but i'm keen to touch on how you got that started because i'm a subscriber and i certainly like the information you're presenting in that podcast so we'll certainly certainly push them that way but this is probably the key thing in junior sport and youth sport and it's probably the biggest question that most community coaches are going to have and also um, so parents let's let's get let's get let's get to the point of um, let's get talk about what a coach can do to get the parents on side and to engage the parents in their in their in their coaching and also advice for parents sitting on the sidelines out there and how they can contribute and help what the coach is actually doing we need probably another five weeks break. We've been talking about this topic for a long time. So my PhD was on parenting and youth sport. Uh, and the vast majority of the research that I've published over the last 10 years, um, and I've built a career on studying parent involvement in sport. Most recently, I think a year or maybe two years ago, I was actually part of an international team that published a scoping review of 70 years of research on sport parenting. So we actually know a lot about parent involvement in sport. Um, what I would say for coaches, first and foremost, is that while often coaches can perceive parents from an enemy lens or enemy perspective, that parents are problematic, they are in need of repair, we need to separate them from the experience, we need to silence them, uh, a lot of those, um, those attitudes are unhelpful, but they're also anti-science, which means even if, if you were to separate parents, it doesn't guarantee that you've in any way minimised their negative impact on youth sport. Uh, and so an example might be this, Brent is coaching my son or daughter, um, the parents are um, separated from the experience or um, through punitive or restrictive or uh, contractual measures have, have silenced parent involvement. Um, there's nothing stopping Sam from getting in the car after your amazing training session that you've developed or your amazing performance on game day and the parent undermining everything you've just done. So the solutions are not inherent in separating parents from coaches, but rather the opposite, which is trying to find ways to bring them together. Now, that isn't necessarily an easy endeavor because the relationships between parents and coaches can be quite conflictual, as I'm sure you're aware. So I think this comes right back to day one. And what I mean by that is when families come to sport for the first time, coaches, clubs, have a responsibility to onboard not just the child and to welcome the child, but to onboard and to welcome the family into that experience. And I would like to offer the analogy of a relationship bank, Brent. So uh, some research I've completed last year um, basically looked at over eight weeks how football, netball, swimming, tennis, how do they set up parents and families for sporting journey? And so what we actually did for eight weeks, we actually adopted fly on the wall, covert observations in the field. And we actually just observed what actually happens over the first eight weeks in these sports. We went to trainings on, um, you know, twice a week into games on the weekend in all of these sports, uh, hundreds of hours of observations. And then we followed up with about 40 interviews as well with the parents and with the coaches. Uh, and what we learned is that over those eight weeks, that parent interactions with coaches is rare. It is rare. And other than day one, where parents sign a code of conduct form um, and pay money for insurance and, and fees and learn how to join TMAP or one of these other communication mediums, um, after that, there's really not much communication between the coaches and the parents. And so I think we need to do better at onboarding families because if we do that, 
we can work with parents to learn about their expectations. We can also work with parents to learn about some of the questions that they might have, especially if they're new to the sport. Um, but we also have an opportunity to start building those relationships. And if we do that, then not only do we reduce the risk of parenting behaviour uh, or, or misbehaviour along the season, but we actually increase the likelihood of parents becoming a volunteer. So there's a, a dual benefit of engaging parents from day one. If we do this once they're on the journey, one of the challenges is undoing the things that parents have already learned. And so if a coach misbehaves or an opposition parent behaves in a particular way, it conditions and reinforces certain expectations and certain norms about how we can behave in sport, not how we should behave necessarily, but but to some degree what might be permitted. And it might be things like a subtle joke about an umpire, sarcasm, uh, then might extend to body language. And before you know it, we've already gone down a path that we might be regretting once it comes to finals or when sport becomes highly emotive, a child gets hit behind play, things do happen. So uh, the way in which we safeguard the experience and the way in which we um, enhance the relationship between parents and coaches is to engage them from day one. It's not theoretical. That's, that's research from our own backyard from as recently as last year uh, in South Australia. So it's, um, it's a nice reflective piece for a lot of clubs. Um, hopefully there are some that do this really well, but it's that mentality that you're not just welcoming, recruiting kids. You're not trying to build participation when we think of children's sport um, as just children. We're, we're really about building participation and in the business of recruiting families. And I think if we take that mentality from day one, uh, then we stand in good stead to improve not just volunteerism, but reduce the incidence of poor parenting behaviours along the journey. So what sort of things did the good clubs do in this space to, to, to get those parents on board as well? Yep, so the first thing that clubs that do well in this space is say thank you. And so I want to come back to this notion of a relationship bank. If Sam comes to Brent's sporting club for the first time, and the first interaction that I have with Brent is very transactional, sign this form, pay me this money, join this app, behave properly, I'm I'm in a relationship with Brent where Brent is withdrawing from this relationship. He's taking things from this relationship bank, but what has Brent or indeed the club deposited into that bank? And at an interpersonal level, they might be simply things like, hey, Sam, before we do anything, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for choosing our club. Thank you for giving us the responsibility to develop your child. Thank you for entrusting us with the safety of who is most precious to you. Uh, and those conversations should not go unnoticed because some recent research last year found a staggering number of young people in children's sport in Australian community sport who had suffered from psychological, um, physical or even sexual violence in their own backyard. This isn't old dated information from another country. This is Australian data published in 2022, 2023. So the, the acknowledgement of even just saying thank you to families means so much more than clubs might even realize. Other things that clubs do really well in this space is those periodic exchanges. They are akin to the parent-teacher interview in school. Why would we not have opportunities for parents and coaches to have conversations along the journey as well? You would say coaches are time poor, they're volunteers, um, they don't want to deal with parents that have complaints. But if we don't have those conversations, especially early on, 
then what they tend to do is to manifest into something much larger, uh, uh, you know, you know, a, a, along the sporting journey. And all it can take is one trigger, one emotional experience for a family, one stressor for a family to trigger an outpouring of grief or um, or conflict. So um, it, it's a it's a really key challenge. But I, I would also argue that coaches that engage in this space early on make their job easier along the journey. Coaches who ignore this early on will inevitably be running away from parents or not wanting to engage with parents along the journey. And it, it, it just makes a, a difficult space for parents and coaches to coexist. Do the, do the clubs themselves have any particular structure behind the scenes that encourages that? Do they have like a like a dedicated coaching person on the committee or is there something behind the scenes that the clubs have set up to encourage that? Yeah, I think one of the – you've touched on a good point. I think one of the great things that committees should have are um, a, a, a seat at the table that are just parents. So they're not fundraising money and they're not doing sponsorship and they're not – doing social events and they're not the president or the chairperson. They are a voice for the parents. And I just think that's a nice perspective, not to necessarily have a vote, but to inform the committee about the challenges that parents inevitably encounter. The research would show there are three stresses that parents typically experience. There are competitive stresses. So parents get nervous about their child's safety and indeed their child's performance in sport. That's that's well documented in literature. There are developmental stresses. So is my child improving? Is my child taking too much time away from school? Are they spending too much time in their sport? Um, so there are those developmental challenges as well. And then, of course, there are these other challenges um, which are more of, of a personal nature effectively. So these might be things like financial stresses or are mum and dad fighting? And, and uh, am I, have I been bullied at school this week and now I've got to go to training and see these boys or girls again? So there are often a range of these interpersonal, these um, developmental and even these competitive stresses that not just children, but again, families encounter. And so it's useful to have those voices and to have a sensitivity to the issues of families so that clubs can be proactive rather than reactive in supporting families across the journey. I think if you can do that, parents and coach relationships inevitably are in a better space. Um, But again, I really keep coming back to this idea of volunteerism. If we want to onboard volunteers that the number one source of volunteers in our communities are parents. Uh, they're not retired people. They are not um, older brothers or sisters, although we tend to see a lot of that in sport. They are mums and dads who are at the games and have the time and therefore the capacity, uh, but maybe not necessarily the literacy, the understanding about how to wave the flags or how to cook the barbecue. So there are certain things that we can put in place to assist that, but it's the human resource of families that will really rebuild volunteerism in community sport. I'm certainly getting a communication vibe through all those all those answers. They're making sure that you you have those channels set up so the parents feel like they can communicate with the coach and with the club about what's going on and being sure that they're that they're being heard. So it sounds like a pretty key point in that space. Yeah, absolutely. And what I think the communication on a number of fronts. So. Um, Often clubs would say, we don't have the resources. We don't. And, and, and one of the episodes that we had on Beyond the Club was with um, a, uh, a really good example of a club that's at the, the forefront of best practice. And they spoke a lot about their organisation. They don't have all the answers. But what they do is look at what winning looks like in other settings. And so if you don't have a, um, 
a handover process at the end of the season. But softball does, or netball does, or another club does, uh, and it's freely available on the internet. What is wrong with taking that and adapting it to your environment? Um, there are a number of types of technologies, AI and automation that can save clubs time. There really is no excuse for clubs not to be finding ways to support their constituents, including parents. Um, but one of the hesitations will be, well, I don't have the time. And, and inevitably there are things here that are designed to give you time, but there are also some really good tips and advice um, that will help clubs improve their communication and their the informational support that they provide their families. We could, we could talk about parents forever. As you said, it's a gun. I can feel a part two, a part three, a part four coming on at some stage, getting invited to talk about specific topics, but there's a few other things I want to cover. Um, probably a hot topic at the moment in, in junior sport and sport in general is getting more girls involved and women involved in sport. So is there anything that, that needs to be different to get females into sport or is it generally down the same lines? Yes, yeah, so um, two comments on this. Yes, there is something that we can do, and I'll elaborate on that in a moment. But the second point is that once you get them in sport, girls, boys, anyone, anyone in your sport, um, my my question and my challenge for all clubs that are listening to your podcast and beyond, uh, what are you going to do once you've got them? And I feel like that's the number one question right now that really needs to be asked. Um, because even if you have a groundswell of interest in your sport, the challenge is to keep them. Otherwise, that interest and that initial uptake in participation or enrollment really doesn't amount to too much. Um, so uh, that that's a challenge for, for clubs, which we can elaborate on maybe in another episode. But in terms of how do we get girls into sport, um, I did some research in 2017, 2018, uh, and we published it uh, not long after, which looked at parents, girls, and Australian football. And it was basically a, a blueprint, a map, for how football has suddenly attracted so many girls to its sport. And a lot of people, when I speak about this topic with, um, had their own ideas, and it must be things like, Sam, it's on TV. If it's on TV, girls must be playing. If it was that easy, then um, how do you explain the other sports that have you know, um, broadcasting capability who haven't seen a sudden lift. So it, it has to be more than that. There has to be something that was going on at a social, at an interactional level that helps us understand why girls are suddenly interested in playing football. And so what we actually found um, was that there were a number of things that started girls' interests and, and, and got them to look at football for the first time. There were then a series of things that facilitated their participation. And then on the back of that, there are a couple of things that really allowed them or, or compelled girls to come back the following year. So if we just look at a couple of examples of what attracts girls to football uh, and indeed sport, um, one of the things might be the idea of um, thrill-seeking, sorry, I did forget, I, I forgot what how I described it, so thrill-seeking. So this is an idea where in 2023, girls are looking for different ways of physically expressing themselves beyond the traditional opportunities. And it's not that football necessarily um, is the best answer for that, but football as a sport provides different avenues for girls to physically express themselves through sport. And so it's not that netball or other sports that are seeking to grow their base need to suddenly have non-contact 
uh, sorry, contact rules uh, or non-contact rules. I'm not saying that they need a hybrid version of netball, which is allowing girls to be tackled on the court. But I am saying that we could potentially engineer an experience which allows girls to express themselves in the way that they are seeking. So that would be a call for all sports to think about, can we can we modify our rules? Uh, can we work with girls in terms of what will make this sport more engaging? Um, and that that's one thing that gets girls to start looking at your sport. It doesn't mean they'll play, it just gets them looking in that direction. Another thing that gets girls looking towards your type of sport um, is this notion of a sisterhood. Now, it's not necessarily a, uh, a, a sense of belonging, but it's a sense of connection to story. And so often when we speak to the girls about, well, is it Erin Phillips? Is it, are, are these key names and their, their, their excellence and their achievement that's drawing you to sport? And the answer is no, it's not. What connects us to Erin Phillips is her story. She had a certain family dynamic growing up and she moved her life overseas and she's had to deal with all of these challenges um, you know, when it comes to her identity. And girls connect with that story. Girls connect with the person uh, rather than the, the accolades and the achievements. And so the lesson here for clubs and for coaches is uh, that, yes, numbers tell, but stories sell. And I think that's a nice way to sort of package that point there, that if clubs can find a way to communicate their story, their, 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 their best stories, their best um, elements of their of the best narrative of their club, they're the things that are really going to compel girls to start looking at your sport. Um, and so the other one there is around desire. And this is really like those girls that naturally just want to play football. doesn't matter what you do or say, there's a very few minority that just will play regardless of what's in their way. And so you've got these three starting points that get girls looking at football. Okay, so what happens once they're there, Brent? Well, there's a number of things. You need a really welcoming environment, so it needs to be optimal, inclusive. Um, it needs to be something that's personalised. Um, you need strong kinship, so strong family support, peer support, teacher support at schools. If you're not in those environments of strong network support around the individual, then that can often make the facilitation of opportunity challenging, uh, but strong social supports is well established in the literature. Um, and the other one is adversity, which is interesting. So once girls sort of start looking at your sport and they decide we're going to sample this, injury or setback or challenge is not necessarily seen as a um, as, as an issue for continuation, but rather a necessary fuel for continuation. Girls love to prove other people wrong. Girls love to prove themselves wrong. They love to be part of a much bigger movement to create opportunities uh, under the guise of, you know, uh, opportunity and, um, and equality. So there's very much a need to uh, learn about the risks of playing any sport and know that when challenge ensues, um, that that's actually, for a lot of girls, quite facilitative. So there are these range of things that encourage girls to continue playing through the season. And then they get to the end of the season and it's like, well, what can you do to get them back the following year? So you need a modicum of team success and it doesn't need to be measured by wins or losses, but you need to have some measure of improvement, which girls will see as success. So what that looks like is up to coaches and clubs to think more laterally beyond just wins or losses. Uh, and so I would really think about how they benchmark data and information gathering across the season. If Brent... Um, was in my football team and um, went from 
15 touches a game to 16 touches a game, you may not see that as an improvement, but if we look a bit deeper and realize that, hey, your 16 touches were highly efficient, your 15 touches were 50-50, then that's a way in which it's it's a tool of persuasion to help you realize success in a way that's beyond these literal measures of wins or losses. Um, so you need some success for the girls to come back the following year. Otherwise, the improvement trajectory is going to be something that they would question. The other thing is duty. So girls invariably are looking for opportunities to grow the sport and your best recruiters are girls. They're not mums or dads running clinics. They're not necessarily, it's all important. I'm not saying you don't do that. But I'm saying in addition to that, your best recruiters are word of mouth, reputation, girls that stand by the product, the experience of football, or your sport as a way of selling it and bringing other girls back. So that's really, really key. And the the final thing that I would say from a separate study is that if girls come and sample your sport, then leave, make sure you do everything to keep the door open, keep connected, because the pendulum can swing back very quickly and they might come back at some point with more friends or with family members and you've got a larger membership base to work with. So we need to zoom out a little bit and look at the medium term. But those types of, if you like, markers help explain how girls are attracted to sport, how they sample the sport, and how we get them back the following year. So much great information there. And uh, if the coaches are tuning into this, they're going to get so much good advice good advice there. So it kind of leads me into where I want to go next is how do we or how should we be evolving coach education programs to make sure this stuff is covered, to make sure coaches are across this stuff and understand what the important things are so coach coach training's improved over over time without question but how how can they improve even further to to improve the, the 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 skills of those coaches out there doing this stuff every day yeah definitely so the first thing that we should recognize is that most of our coaches are volunteers so they work and they give up their time often away from family to give back to sport um, and so it can be quite challenging to just say, do a level one, do a level two, go and do um, a, a course via the Australian Sports Commission. All recommended, highly recommended. But in reality, we also know that a lot of our volunteers um, do not have that capacity. So there's a couple of things that I would suggest. And I love what you're doing, Brent, because um, you'd be you know, one of several people that I'm aware of that's really trying to help our coaches and help our listeners improve often through a medium such as podcasting. So I'd encourage all of our listeners, you know, a drive to work, a drive home from school, a drive to the game on the weekend to really do your professional development on the way to sport, often when you might not be doing anything else. Those discrete moments by listening to your podcast or um, Beyond the Club is my podcast where we're really trying to communicate good ideas to the masses so that we can affect change tomorrow. Um, those are the kind of opportunities that I would encourage all coaches to take advantage of. The other things you might consider, and a, a shameless plug for Flinders, Brent, but we have a flexible online uh, graduate certificate in sports coaching. Um, and so the nature of learning is self-paced, which I think would appeal to a lot of our coaches. And so it's a lesson here to, um, of course, if you want to look at that, go for it. But it's a lesson here to look at the different offerings that are available and try and find ways to make them work for you. And it's probably up to providers, universities, uh, sporting organisations, other accredited bodies to make sure that any of these PD opportunities are flexible, uh, self-paced, 
Uh, and if we do that, then we are likely to see a greater uptake of these programs. The other thing I would say is that the content in the programs need to be relevant. I've seen so many which touch on mental health, which touch on pedagogy, so game-based training, which touch on relationship formation, um, which touch on organisation and time management. But I, I think we really need to think carefully about what coaches actually need. And sometimes it's how do you make your sport fun? How do you make it fun? How do you get your players back the following year? What is your retention strategy? And your retention strategy isn't on the last day of the year. Your retention strategy starts on day one that people come through your doors. And so we need to really think about the design of these programs to maximise the proposition that sport can offer young people. Um, so I think there'd be a couple of ideas there, Brent, to really, um, I guess, hopefully entice your listeners and encourage your listeners to pursue some professional development. I think it's cool. Like I'll, I'll give my um, school a plug as well. When I did my I did my postgrad, did a grad cert, grad diploma, and masters in sport coaching. But there was only one. I think only one school at the time doing it. And that was University of Queensland, and it was more aimed at that high performance space, which is which was perfect for me because that's where I was keen to go, and it got me some roles overseas. But um, as you said, just being sure that there's more schools doing it now. Obviously, your school's doing it, and I know VU do some stuff as well in that sport coaching space. But covering the topics that are relevant to the to the coaches doing the doing the training is extremely important, and it's a it's a challenging space to do. But that that self paced stuff really appeals, I think, as well for most coaches. As you said, they're time poor, so being able to do it at their own pace is. He's, he's cool. Sounds Absolutely. Great. And we, we designed our online flexible uh, program through consultation with exactly who you're speaking about, coaches who who want to get, you know, they, they're enthusiastic about their coaching. They may want to improve. Um, or those coaches that are purely volunteers, but they wouldn't mind the idea of further learning. And, and what we're able to do is develop a program that, um, yes, is flexible, yes, is online, um, but the topic and the content is really determined, not by me. It's determined by young people uh, or, or, sorry, inexperienced coaches uh, or even experienced coaches who are in community sport and uh, are seeking more from their from their development. So it's an, it's an important space. Um, and for all of your listeners, if you are thinking about it, there are the tide is turning and there are some options for uh, further development on your own terms. Really cool. Um, just on that, you, you touched early on on soft skills and how important they were for coaches. Um, how would you encourage coaches to work on their soft skills? And is there anything, any certain sites or resources out there that you can suggest for coaches that are keen to improve their soft skills? Yeah, well, the first thing I'd say is that it's really important that coaches understand that um, the way in which you might develop these skills is firstly to recognise that as coaches we we don't know a lot about coaching. Um, and it's it's that Dunning-Kruger effect, this phenomenon where the more you learn, the the, the more you realise you've got to learn. And so um, there's, there's really this important point where coaches need to get to, which is once you step into that space, there's a lot of ego, there's a lot of display of competence in front of other people. Uh, and to be vulnerable and to be open-minded about your areas of improvement and development can be quite challenging. Uh, but if you can get to that point, uh, Brent, then what I would say is that um, it allows you to then really focus in on reflective practice um, because that seems to be one of the best ways to develop these types of, um, I, I would say, the hardness of soft skills. So you start to harden these soft skills. 
um, these these skills of emotional intelligence, um, when to listen and to listen actively and then when to speak rather than just to fill the room with your voice. Um, those things are learned only through reflective practice. Um, there are opportunities for coaches to receive feedback from others. So often peer review is a great activity to develop some of these uh, skills of emotional intelligence and reading the room. Uh, and so it'd be great for Brent to record himself at training and then to have a peer that can comment on it and in a non-judgmental way to say, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, have you considered this? And not for Brent to disagree or to argue, but to say, thank you, I will take that on board and I'll see how that sits with me upon reflection. Uh, and then it's incumbent on you, Brent, to then think, well, what do I do with that? Okay, so there's no framework to say you must take this feedback on board. It's simply just a critical friend that's acting as a soundboard for your coaching development. And I think that the way in which you open your mind to those ideas is to really adopt that growth mindset and accept that the more you get into your coaching, the, the less you actually know um, or the less you realise that you know. Um, and so that, that I think is a, a nice, it's a beautiful point to get to as, coach, as a coach and um, something once you're there, uh, it really does fuel a curiosity uh, to do better and to learn more can be scary to film yourself if you haven't seen yourself coaching before i've done that over the years and it can be it can be challenging you, you don't realize some of the things you actually do as a coach until you actually see it on film sometimes yeah absolutely we do it at south adelaide a lot and um my first year out there i i, I felt like i had a lot of knowledge to share and a lot of insights to, to to hit the ground running with coaching um and from the very first time i was recorded um it was a complete 180 degree shift in communication, language, simplicity of, of, of instruction. And um, there's a lot that can be learned from that in terms of uh, your own educational understanding of the sport, but then also uh, the way in which you communicate and connect your ideas with others. Interesting what you said about um, you don't realise what you don't have until you start to go into it. You start to realise how much is actually out there and it can be a bit overwhelming sometimes as a coach and I've had that experience myself where you start getting into a topic and you go wow i don't know anything about this and there's so much to learn once you get over that that shock it's easy to, to get excited and get and go hang on a sec well i've got all this stuff now i can learn and improve and, and build on and that's exciting as a coach i think most coaches enjoy the fact that they can continue to improve their skills so as soon as you get past that first shock of saying wow there's so much out there it can be quite exciting yeah, absolutely. And I think the the big challenge is that, uh, again, in, in Australian football, if you've got a very um, enthusiastic father or mother who's played the game and is coaching, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a good coach. They may have played the game 20 years ago and they may have played at a very high level, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they can nurture good coach-athlete relationships. It doesn't necessarily mean that they can onboard families into the journey. It doesn't necessarily mean they know how to motivate all children, maybe some, but not all. Um, they don't necessarily know how to maximise fun in sport. They may not know how to differentiate or to provide a tailored learning experience because their experiences may be at a high level or their worldview may be very insular or very fixed. Uh, and so it doesn't matter if you're a first-time coach or if you have played the game for 20 years uh, it's really important to adopt that open-minded approach and to really um, expose, 
yourself to the possibility that you could learn something new at any point from anyone. Great advice. And it's a point that I bring up quite often is two separate skills, coaching and playing are two separate skills. And we see it in the high performance space just because you're a superstar player doesn't translate to being a superstar coach straight away. So, Yeah, look, in my experience, the best coaches at a community level, if I was to compare someone that's played the sport versus a physical education teacher that hasn't played the sport is the teacher because they tick invariably a lot more boxes for child development in the sport than the person that's played the game at a higher level. Let's not say that if our listeners are that person and they happen to be a very good communicator and a very good relationship builder that they uh, can't play that role as a volunteer coach, of course they can. Um, but just as a, as a general rule, and I've interviewed thousands and surveyed thousands of, of parents and coaches and children over the last decade, um, and my, my sense is that, uh, yeah, there's, there's certain skills that a lot of volunteers don't have, and that's okay. Uh, and it's about just recognising your growth areas and what you might seek to try and improve as you go forward. Now, I'm conscious of time. Um, we have, you've, I could keep you here forever. You're such a, a great guest to have on it, but I want to touch on your podcast. What was the thought process behind starting up the podcast? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, we received some funding from the Office for Rec Sport and Racing to create a method for communicating scientific knowledge to communities. Often when I publish research, Brent, not many people read it. Other <laughs> academics read it. Some policymakers read it. People at the Sports Commission might read it. But... That's about it, which means that 99% of our community who could benefit from this information don't even know that this work is out there. Um, and so the way that they might come across it is incidentally, if they follow me on LinkedIn or on social media, uh, or perhaps uh, if it's on the news, it might be newsworthy, the research that I've just published, uh, but the large majority is untapped. And so what we wanted to do in this project was to build a podcast, build a platform that could break down this information into bite-sized pieces of information that could make our, our clubs more skilled, more knowledgeable, more agile. Um, and so I teamed up with a great uh, group of uh, organisations and, and persons, uh, the Alcohol and Drug Foundation's Good Sports Program, the Sammy D Foundation here in South Australia, uh, Ben Hook from The Advertiser. Um, and we basically come together, the Shape Research Centre here at Flinders, we come together to basically create this podcast beyond the club. Um, and in our podcast, Ben and I, almost like a yin-yang, as an insider-outsider, aim to unpack a, a topic or an idea and to provide some information and some fixed solutions for our listeners. And so um, it, it would say that I encourage all, our, um, or all your listeners to be involved in as well if they're looking to, um, I guess, get their hands on some more material and our thinking behind that was really only driven by, not, not only driven by the need to share information more widely, but to make it accessible. And so by podcasting, it's typically freely available. You can listen to it on demand, so when, when it suits you. Uh, and as you would know, Brent, it's a way in which we can communicate in a um, in, in double speak. We can have some intellectual conversation, but we can break it down into some more casual examples as well. And that tends to really appeal to our audience. So right now we're in 26 countries. We've had over 4,000 streams and we're hoping that we get a few more because we'd love to have uh, our listeners benefiting from the sharing of knowledge. 
certainly encourage everyone that's tuning into this one to go and check that one out. It's a, it's a great, great show, some really cool information. So certainly encourage everyone to go and go and check that out. Um, if you could break, if you could summarize the advice you've given over the hour today into one simple piece of advice for coaches out there. So coaches starting out, just coaches in general, how would you, what would you say to them? Uh, I would say, I know you said one thing, I'll say two things here, Brent, <laughs> uh, if that's okay. I would say that your role should never be underestimated because without coaches, community sport, as we all know, does not exist. Uh, and that, by extension, is to all adults involved in sport. So your voluntary contribution is one of the most important things that we see in, in not just community sport, but in Australian society. I think 1.6 billion volunteers in community sport um, I think there's an estimated, uh, I don't know, like $7 billion to our economy um, as a social and economic return on investment. So the the contribution of, of coaches and of our volunteers is massive. So that would be number one. But with that, I would also say that in this environment, it is a competitive uh, and very much an achievement domain. And so in these types of environments, um, Although we love to see a friendly, welcoming, everyone gets along environment, um, there are going to be challenges along the way. And coaches just need to know that in these moments of challenge, whether it's training quality, relationships, decisions about development, doesn't matter what it is, that their contributions nonetheless matter. And um, if they just adopt a collaborative, open-minded approach, um, that's what's really going to serve young people best. So um, two pieces of advice there. Keep doing what you're doing. We, we thank you and we want you to con contribute in any way that you can, but also really work to collaborate and be open-minded about how we go forward. Really cool. like that one. So where do you go for your sources of information if you want to improve yourself? Are there any sites that you go to? Is there any books out there or podcasts that you tune into that we can suggest to our listeners? So as, as I said from the top, I'm fundamentally a researcher. So it's it's quite funny because often I'm sought after for um, some type of authoritative voice on a topic or some level of expertise. But my expertise and my knowledge comes from your listeners, Brent. They come from families. They come from communities. They come from people in, you know, in our communities that are doing grassroots sport. And so through survey design, through research, uh, through interviewing um, the, the work that I do, the things that I learn and my go-to resource are anyone that will be involved in the research that I undertake. So I would encourage anyone that has an opportunity to be involved in sport, in any uh, sport research, uh, in any domain, um, whether it be in coaching or sport psychology or sport development or policy, it doesn't matter what opportunities um, that, that might present. If your listeners have an opportunity to be involved in research, have your voices, your experiences heard, then uh, collectively, uh, that's one of the most important things that, that can move our, our, our sports forward. Uh, and that seems to be my number one source for, for learning. Oh, good. So plugs, mate. We've obviously given your, your podcast a bit of a plug, so I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes. Uh, social handles, anywhere people can get in touch with you if they need to, to talk to you. Yes, Sam Elliott uh, on LinkedIn. You'll also be able to find me on Twitter. I'm fairly active on Twitter these days. So uh, Sam underscore Elliott FU. I know it sounds horrible. Um, <laughs> Flinders University, that stands for. So Sam underscore Elliott FU. Um, and um, I'm a bit embarrassed to say that out loud, but that's what it is. Um, and, of course, if you want to jump into the podcast, as I said, Beyond the Club, 
uh, on all of your major podcast platforms. And we'll put links in the show notes for everyone so they can find you. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I've kept you over what I said I would. Um, you just got so much good information and such a, a great guest to have on the show. So I really appreciate your time and for sharing with everyone. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Brent, and we should do it again.